my great privilege to be here with you tonight, and um, I intend to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and His substitutionary atoning work on the cross for us and His burial carrying our sins away and our glorious promises that come to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ tonight. And I intend to do so from First Peter chapter 1. I invite you now, if you would please, take uh, your copy of God's Word and open it up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be giving our attention to verses 10, 11, and 12. Though we're going to be looking at several different places in the Scriptures tonight, but home base is going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So reads the words of the living God. Let's go to him once again in prayer tonight. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your word. God, we confess to you that if it were not uh, that you had granted to us these verses that we have just read together, God, we would be at a disadvantage in our Christian life. Father, we believe that these words are profitable for us. God, I pray that you would use them tonight to stir us up to love and good works, that you would use these passages to further equip us in the good works that you have called us to. And Father, I pray that if necessary, that you would correct any thinking that is an error in pertaining to these passages tonight. And Father, I pray that you might provoke us to confess any sin that comes out of the exposition of this passage tonight as well. But Father, above all, we desire to see your glory illuminated in the face and your Son through the working of the Holy Spirit. Father, I confess that uh, those uh, works of the saints being encouraged and stirred up to loving good works and even the lost being saved... These are things that I cannot do in and of myself, nor do you need my help in doing these things. And so, Father, I pray that through the working of the Spirit and through your Word, you might accomplish what is humanly impossible. Father, I pray that you might encourage your church and that you might call the lost to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen. Well, tonight as we get going here in 1 Peter... We are starting here in the first chapter, and there's quite a bit that has already been said in this letter, right before the passage that we have began with reading here tonight. The Apostle Peter is writing to individuals that are Christians in exile. And the reason they are exile is not because they are seeking for a stronger economy in another land. They're not in exile because they just want a different pace of life or a different scenery, but rather they are in exile because of their attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, these Christians that are in the dispersion because of persecution that is on the rise and persecution that is only going to get worse for them in the context of their life and over the next decade of their life, the Spirit of God inspires Peter to take up pen and to write this portion of God's Word. This is intended to be an encouragement to Christians that are living in a world and attempting to live a life that is countercultural to the darkness that is around them. And so we might find um, some uh, sense of... Um, appropriateness to us reading this passage tonight. The Bible says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Now, you might not to have had to sell your home and land or even flee for your life because of your attachment to Jesus Christ, but what I do know is that being a disciple of Jesus Christ has cost you something in your life. 
And so tonight, I pray that you would be encouraged by what Peter has to say to us, and furthermore, that you would be encouraged by the fact that we have the Scriptures at all, that God would communicate to us this passage here and all of the passages that pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we begin here in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 and 4 and 5, Peter shows us in those verses that God has established for us a glorious and a living hope and an inheritance that has been sealed for us and kept in heaven, a place that nothing on this planet is able to destroy. And so God has intended to bless you in ways that are beyond your comprehension now, and He has guaranteed the fact that you will be blessed in that way because the inheritance that He intends to give to you, because of your attachment to Jesus Christ, is kept in heaven with Him. And that becomes your inheritance as you are adopted into the family of God through being adopted through the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing by faith in Him. And then in verses 6-9, to we see an establishing that hope that He wishes that we would have tonight. He has given us a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And it's amazing that he says that you have a joy that is inexpressible and you are filled with glory. And this is true of you no matter what the context that you live in happens to be. The original readers of this letter were living in suffering and persecution. And he says to those individuals, you have an inheritance that is kept for you. It is waiting for you and it will be delivered to you. And furthermore, in this moment, because of your attachment to Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you, you have a joy that is inexpressible. And you, my dear brother and sister, are filled with glory because of it. And this glory and this inheritance is given to you hope in the midst of hopeless situations. And so he says there in verses 10, 11, and 12, this great hope that is established to us even in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ, well, that is the substance of all of the promises that God intends to give to you. In other words, what the Apostle Peter would have you to be encouraged with tonight is the entirety of the package of your redemption that has been provided to you through the person and work of Christ. And so tonight as we take up this passage, there are three points that I would like to point out, although admittedly we're going to spend the vast majority of our time tonight on the first point, and then there will be a second point, and then I'd also like to give us some application as we leave tonight. But let's jump in with both feet. Number one, I would like for us to see from this passage here in the New Testament in First Peter that the gospel of Jesus Christ, precisely speaking, the suffering of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glory of Christ is the main theme of the entirety of the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament Scriptures. And so this section that we come here to tonight in First Peter, it helps us to answer a question that has been um, on my mind in recent days, and a question I believe is increasingly more and more important every year. It's a massively important question. And it's a question that is not just important for us to consider in our Christian walk as we read the Scriptures ourselves. That's true, but that's not the full context of it. The reason that this question needs to be asked and answered tonight is because this is something that is becoming increasingly controversial even in the midst of evangelical Christianity. And the question that I have in mind is this, what is the Old Testament about? What is the Old Testament about? And attached to that question is the secondary question, not just what is the Old Testament about, but what are we to do with the Old Testament? To say that another way is as Christians that live in the New Testament era and Christians that live under the New Covenant, how are we to take up and read that first two-thirds of our Bible? 
And my friends, as it comes to answering that question, there is a great gulf between different groups of people that would seek to answer that question in different ways. You see, on the one side and on one hand, we could ask a question, well, what is the Old Testament about and what are we to do with? And we could answer it with saying, well, the Old Testament, it is a collection of writings. And the primary concern of that collection of writings is the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And so the, it is the history and the origins of the people, of the nation of Israel. It is the law of the nation of Israel. It is the religious principles and the religious prophecies of the nation of Israel that lived in the Old Testament times. And it is the wisdom of the Old Testament Israel people. It is the poetry of Old Testament Israel. And it is the songbook of Old Testament Israel. And as so with any ancient nation, if we were to answer the question in that way... Well, we might wind up reading the Bible just like we read any other ancient tale. You might wind up reading the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, in the same way that you would read the Iliad, or the same way that you would read the tales of Gilgamesh. We would read stories about kings and conquerors and even concubines. Well, the Bible has that in common with other ancient historical documents, but is that all that the Old Testament is? We read about the laws of these people. We read of the judges who ruled over these people. We read of the kings and the dynasties that ruled over these people. We find tragedies in the Old Testament. We find triumph in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with all sorts of love stories. But if we were to summarize what the Old Testament is from that viewpoint of merely being a historical accurate account of a people that lived a long time ago... Well, we might wind up saying something like, well, the Old Testament, it is the history and the origins and the religion of the nation of Israel. Now, in that particular view of the Old Testament, you might even still be able to say, in fact, you would be able to say that the Old Testament does, in fact, point forward to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And you might even say, well, it it points forward in very special areas in a very strong way. In fact, in ways that you could almost even not miss if you were trying to. And so you might wind up looking at the Old Testament the way that you would look at a theological allegory. You might read the Old Testament in the same way that you would read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, well, obviously, Aslan the lion here, well, Aslan is a picture of Christ, and and we see all sorts of gospel uh, attachment to the stories in The Chronicles of Narnia. And in the same way, there are certain characters in the Old Testament which obviously foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there are certain aspects in the Old Testament that obviously foreshadow the church and obviously show us God's great love for the world. Places like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. Clearly, that is a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. Places like Psalm 22. And in fact, we don't even have to worry about wondering about Psalm 22 because Jesus announces from one of his sayings on the cross that this is what Psalm 22 is all about. Eli, Eli, lama sabantani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the title line of Psalm 22. So obviously, Jesus wants us to think about him being the fulfillment of Psalm 22. But for most of the Old Testament, through this viewpoint, that is not the case. There's only those glaringly obvious examples where Jesus wants to be seen in the Old Testament, but throughout the majority of it, this is only a historical narrative that tells us about a people that lived a long time ago, their songs and their wisdom and their kings and their practices. But on the other hand, another way we could ask the question of what is the Old Testament about and what are we to do with it would be to say that the main message of the Old Testament in its entirety and in its own terms, 
is the crucified Christ. That's the view, brothers and sisters, that Peter would have us to walk away with tonight. He says there in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the salvation that you enjoy in Jesus Christ, the salvation that has been provided to you by your sovereign Savior, the salvation that includes an inheritance that will never be taken away from you, that has been sealed in the very blood of Jesus Christ, and it became yours at the moment that you were regenerated, that very salvation, concerning that salvation, the prophets, when did the prophets prophesy? In the older testamental time. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. What is the grace precisely that is yours in Christ? It is the grace that we see in the new covenant that is made in the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter says concerning that salvation that you enjoy, the prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So what is it that Peter is telling us here in this verse? Well, clearly, brothers and sisters, he is telling us that the Spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets. In fact, the New Testament tells us that the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the animating force that caused them to write these things to tell us about what? What is the subject matter that Peter says the prophets were looking into? This suffering and the subsequent glories of Jesus Christ. To put that another way, the old Old Testament prophets were concerned with looking into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the prophets wrote concerning the salvation that he began talking about all the way back in verse 3. A salvation achieved through the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, through him taking on your sin and bearing the wrath that you deserve, and then granting to you the righteousness that you do not have. And then we find in the resurrection that he has fit you for heaven. Because in the resurrection we find that is the Father's amen to the Son's exclamation from the cross, it is finished. For the first time in all time, the sacrifice was acceptable to God and got up off of the altar of sacrifice. And the prophets themselves, the men who wrote the text of the Old Testament under the direction of the Spirit of God. Now, by the way, writing under the direction of the Spirit of God, this is not some form of Eastern mysticism, some sort of a free writing exercise where they just put a pen in their hand or a quill in their hand and look the other direction and the Holy Spirit took them over as if they were a robot. No, I find one of the most amazing things about God's Word is that this book is inspired by the Spirit of God and we have the message that God would have us to have, but also you read something from Peter and it sounds like Peter wrote it. I love that aspect of the sovereignty of God and also the humanity coming through in this book. And so the Old Testament prophets were animated by and illuminated by the Spirit of God. And they themselves were searching and inquiring and asking, when will these things be? The prophets were saying, this sounds glorious. Boy, I hope I get to see it. When will these things be? What will these things look like when they come to pass? But at bottom, Peter tells us that the Old Testament scriptures are about Jesus. Now here's the question. How? So if we ask the question, what is the Old Testament about and what are we to do with it? 
Well, I've already given you the answer, although I haven't supported my answer from the text yet, but I'm about to. The answer is the Old Testament um, prophets and the Old Testament stories in general are about primarily, in their own terms, about Jesus. What are we to do with them? Well, this is the amazing thing. You read through the Old Testament and you find all sorts of sections that really cause you to scratch your head a bit and say, well, you know, this is the law that pertains to the atonement under the sacrificial system. So obviously this can't apply now. But here's the thing, friends. We are not to read even the Old Testament law as if God never said it. Right? So here's the amazing thing as a Christian. As a Christian, we believe everything that the Scriptures set forth. And the Old Testament is a part of the Scriptures, so we believe it. However, we do not read the Old Testament Scriptures, even the law, as if Jesus Christ never came. We can't do that because Peter says the Old Testament is about, in its own terms, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how then is the Old Testament about Jesus? Is it in an allegorical form that it's about Jesus? Is it merely a historical, accurate form of all the different shadows that God placed in? Or is it something more than that? Because on its own, you might still be able to believe that Peter only means those special messianic prophecies. Only the places like Isaiah 53, only the places like Psalm 22. But when you come to Leviticus chapter 3, obviously this is not about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or is it? What he does not mean to tell us is that what is happening throughout the entirety of the Old Testament is not about Christ, rather he says it is. So let me get back to that dichotomy of the question again before we jump in with both feet and answer it. Is the Old Testament only about Jesus primarily in a few places that are glaringly obvious? Or is it something more? You know, there's an amazing thing that happens in the life of Peter, something that I believe that he never got over, something I know that he never got over, and something that even comes out here in this passage in this epistle. I think that Peter, one of his answers to us would be, if we were to ask him those questions, would be, well, you know what? You should flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and you should read Luke chapter 24 And then tell me what you think. Because in Luke chapter 24, what do we find? It's an amazing scene. We find two disciples of Jesus Christ who were not any of the so-called super apostles, but these were followers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ that were not the twelve, and they are traveling about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to a village that is called Emmaus. And, And this happens on this road. Something amazing happens. All of these take place on the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Luke records for us then what happens next in Luke 24, beginning in verse 15. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read a rather lengthy section here all the way down to verse 27, but it's worth the time because this is very important, and it helps us to answer these questions accurately. Luke chapter 24, we find, while they were talking and discussing together, that is, these two disciples on the road, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor of Jerusalem who does not know the things that has happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? I love this. I love this because I know reading this as well as you know reading this, Jesus is not seeking for information. He's transferring information here. But he asked him the question, what things? 
And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Listen to the sadness here. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, pay attention to what he says. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, before I read that next section of the verse, what is it that Peter says the Old Testament is about? Suffering, subsequent glory. What is it that we read here from Jesus himself in Luke 24? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And then we have the most amazing sermon that was not recorded for us. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now, as Luke 24 says, all the Scriptures, what Scriptures, pray tell, are in mind? The Old Testament Scriptures. Now, soon after this, their eyes were opened, and they realized that it was Jesus. And now this is very, very important because this is where Peter comes into the storyline now. And I believe something that happens to Peter shortly after this in Luke 24 that he never gets over and finds its way into 1 Peter chapter 1. As soon as those two disciples return back to Jerusalem, right? whatever business they had in Emmaus, that can wait. We've got to get back to Jerusalem. Something amazing has happened here. And they found the 11 remaining disciples. And I say the 11 because now we're missing one of the 12. Of course, Judas Iscariot is no longer there. But he goes back and they find the 11, and the 11 would be inclusive of Peter that wrote this letter that we are concerned with tonight. And they tell the 11 what had happened to them and everything that they have heard, and as they are recounting the story to the 11, Jesus then suddenly appears again, something that he does pretty often after his resurrection from the dead. And so Jesus suddenly appears in their midst, and they were understandably shocked. Who let him in? And if you didn't let him in, how did he get into here? Well, I don't know, but here he is. Well, after they calm down and Jesus comforts them, tells them to not be afraid, this is what he says to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Notice those three categories. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. Then he Amazing word. I didn't intend to talk about this, but we've got 30 seconds. The text says he opened their minds. That Greek word open there is a fascinating word. It's the Greek word dianoigo. It means to reveal something that was previously hidden. It would, it would have been used in such a way to speak about, well, they didn't have the option of finding out if it was going to be a boy or if it was going to be a girl whenever someone was pregnant. They would have to wait till the revealing, the dianoigo, right? So there were certain things that they could not see until God opened up their eyes. 
Christ. My dear brothers and sisters, if you are a brother and sister tonight, if you have received the salvation that Peter says that Jesus Christ has brought into the world, you have received that salvation because God opened up your eyes and showed you something that you could have never found on your own. This is the grace of our God. And he says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. Written where? In the Old Testament that the Christ should, here it is, suffer. There's the suffering. What comes next according to Peter? The subsequent glory. Keep reading. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus rebuked them for not believing what? The Old Testament Scriptures. What precisely did they not believe? What precisely were they slow to understand from the Old Testament Scriptures? That Christ would suffer, and after His suffering, enter into glory. So, based upon that little survey of the New Testament, what is the Old Testament primarily about? The suffering and the subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. Which is why, brothers and sisters, when you take up this book to read, this is why a part of your reading and a part of your study must include a prayer. Oh God, would you show me what I cannot see on my own? We know that we have to pray that way because the Scriptures say of itself the flesh is of no help at all in this endeavor. These things are spiritually discerned. And so as you take up the Scriptures, we are dependent upon the Spirit of God to open up our eyes and to show us what? The suffering and the glory of Christ. As you read through your Old Testament, you pray that the Spirit of God would help you, that when you put your ear to the page, you would hear the ring of the nails being pounded into the hands and feet of the Messiah on the cross, because that is what it is about. Everything written about me, everything written in the law and the prophets, it is about me. Now the phrase that Jesus uses there that I call to your attention is massively important. The law of Moses, category one. The prophets, category two. And the Psalms, Category 3. This is a Jewish shorthand version of speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament writ. They would traditionally divide the Old Testament into those sections. The law, and the prophets, and the writings. There would also be subsections that go along with those three, but those are the three major sections. Let me just work through that really quickly. The law, what is the law? Well, we call it the book of Moses. We call it the Pentateuch. It is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets. What is inclusive in that title of the prophets? Well, it includes Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve minor prophets as well. And finally, the writings. Well, what is inside of that heading of the writing? Well, everything that we haven't said so far, right? It includes the Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. It includes all of the wisdom literature, also Lamentations, Daniel, Ruth, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. In other words, in those three headings, we have included in that the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. So what I'm saying is that the formula that Jesus uses indicates that He is referring to everything in the Older Testamental period. Being chiefly concerned with what? The death, burial, and the resurrection of the Son of God. And not just in a few special parts. 
This is so important. And Jesus is saying, and then our text today is saying, that Peter wants us to say, he is affirming that the entirety of the Old Testament is chiefly concerned with the cross of Jesus Christ, not just a few special places. Now, I want you to see this in action. And so what I want to do now, as the clock is ticking down quickly, but I think we're okay, I'd like to, over the next however much time we have together here, preach the whole Bible to you. I'll take your silence as consent. Number two for tonight, the Christ in the Older Testament. Let me just briefly walk through, and and I don't have time. In fact, brothers and sisters, I'm about to give you 25 different sermons in about a 10-minute span. And so I have the joy of being a visiting preacher tonight, so I'm going to unpin some theological grenades and roll them out here, and by the time they explode, I'll be on the way back to Lake City, and your pastors will have to deal with it. That's the privilege I have for tonight, though. But I do want to give you an overview of what it is I'm getting at here. So let me briefly look at those three sections of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, and see how it is that they speak about Jesus. Not just in a few prophetic places that come to mind off the top of your head, but I'd like to show you a few more tonight. First of all, sub-point A, Christ in the Law. Christ in the law. Christ in the first five books of the Bible. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I would submit to you, friends, based upon the New Testament proclamation about itself, that the first five books of the Bible is primarily concerned with the suffering and subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. That's what it is about. Now, does it tell us all sorts of other things? Absolutely. You begin in the book of Genesis, and there's a reason that God, in the inspiration of the Spirit of God, placed that at the beginning of the Bible, because in the book of Genesis, I don't know if you've ever been mindful of this or not, every single major theological and doctrinal point that will ever come up in the remainder of the 65 books of the Bible, you are introduced to in seed form in the book of Genesis. Which means, even by me saying that, I am already getting to the fact that the book of Genesis is about the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the book of Genesis, Jesus, He is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is the Logos. He is the Logos that creates the entirety of the cosmos, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So He is the great gardener that creates the garden itself. He is the handcrafter of humanity. We are created in the image of God for the purpose of glorifying God. And Jesus, my dear friends, is said in the New Testament to be the member of the Godhead, the member of the Trinity that upholds the universe by the word of His power. Well, that very same word of His power was the word that was used to create that universe in the first place. Mankind is created in the image of God for glorifying God. And furthermore, we find in the New Testament how it is that you do that. Because mankind is made to glorify God, but we are born in rebellion against God. And the book of Acts chapter 17, it says, if you want to do what you are made for, there's something you must do. You have been made to glorify God. You've been made to worship Him, but sin has made that an impossibility for you. And the times of ignorance God overlooked, but in this time He has now appointed Jesus Christ to be the judge of all of the earth, and you must repent of your sins and believe upon Him. Him. How is it that you do what mankind was meant to do in the book of Genesis? If sin has destroyed that, you do it through the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. Well, that's an amazing story, isn't it? That's one of those grenades that I don't intend to defuse right now, but I will just at least give it to you. God creates the universe in absolute perfection. And he places our first parents, Adam and Eve, in an absolutely perfect garden. 
but not a garden that is limitless, but it's intended to cover the entirety of the earth. And so mankind, through Adam, is charged to take dominion over the earth and to expand the boundaries of the Garden of Eden, to go forth and establish the rightful rule that God has granted to Adam through the entirety of the earth. And not only that, he is to protect and to keep that garden as well. Protected against what? Oh yeah, that's right. In the midst of a perfect world and a perfect garden, danger was right around the corner. And danger shows up soon enough in what appears to be a foil in the storyline of God. What we have here in this perfect place, we've got Lucifer, the great deceiver, the man of lawlessness himself from the eternal realm. He comes into the world and what does he do? Well, he tempts our first mother Eve and she takes some of the fruit that God had placed off limits. She eats of it and then she gives some to her husband. He takes of it and he eats as well. What happens next? Their eyes are opened up and they realize we've messed up terribly. They hide from God. God comes looking for them. Adam, where are you? Where is Adam? He's hiding. That's what sin does to us. But in the midst of his cursing, and there is cursing there, he curses the man. Through the sweat of your brow, you will find your food throughout all of the days of your life. Curses the woman, your pain shall be multiplied in childbearing. And curses the ground itself. Thorns and thistles and all sorts of things will attack the fertility of that soil. But in the midst of all of his cursing, we come to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. In Genesis 3.15, we come to what theologians refer to as the proto-euangelion, the first telling of the gospel. Well, what is the first telling of the gospel? The seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. Well, who is the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent? (laughs) It's about Jesus, isn't it? Peter says that story in the book of Genesis, it's about the suffering... How is it that the seed of a woman will destroy the seed of the serpent through laying down his life as a substitutionary atonement on the cross? And how is it that he will be victorious through the resurrection and glory to come? The book of Genesis chapter 3, it is about the suffering and the subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. And we keep going through the scriptures. We come to the book of Genesis and God sets his affections upon an unlikely target. A person that most likely worshipped the moon. His name was Abram. God loved Abraham. Came to him. Took him to a place that he had never been to and says, all of this is going to be yours. But even greater than all of that, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham. And through that descendant, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. You know, it's amazing. Abraham has promised sons, plural, offspring, plural. In fact, offspring that is so numerous that if you were able to number the stars in the sky, and if you were able to number all of the sand on the seashore, then you might be able to number Abraham's descendant. But that's not how the world is saved. You go back and you read the promise to Abraham, the son that will be the savior. It's all singular. In the Hebrew text, I will give you a son, the son of promise. Who is that son of promise in whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed? It's the very same one that shed his own blood so that all of the nations of the earth are represented in Revelation 5 around the throne of God, worshiping the lamb that was slain. And not only, this is the amazing thing, not only is God the one that is promising this to Abraham, God is the thing that is promised to Abraham, my son. In the book of Exodus, Jesus is the lamb slain that death might pass over the people of God. And he saves his people by judging their enemies and revealing his own glory at the one and same time. Keep that in mind. 
And He, my dear friends, the Son of God, Jesus Himself, He is the true Israel of the book of Exodus who passes not just through the figurative burial and resurrection of going into the waters of the Red Sea and then going safely through to the other side and having that resurrection and new life experience, but Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that and that He is actually buried in a garden tomb and then resurrected to glory afterwards while His enemies are being defeated. The New Testament says when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, He puts all of the rulers of this world, all of the fallen in this world, to open shame in doing so. What is it that happens to Pharaoh's army? Pharaoh and all of his military might, they are put to open shame for everyone to see. And his enemies are judged while his people are being saved. My dear friends, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That much is absolutely true. But Jesus is also the Lamb with whom the inhabitants of the earth and the revelation will call out for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Why? Because when Jesus saves His people, He also pronounces condemnation upon His enemies. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. The priest in the book of Leviticus, they preach of the mediating work of Jesus Christ. The priest, they knew, they absolutely knew that the animals that were put to death inside of the tabernacle and inside of the temple, they could do nothing, the book of Hebrews says, to grant the worshipers a clear conscience before God. And so the Levitical priesthood, it was proclaiming the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ as our only hope, who is in His true humanity, takes, my dear friends, humanity upon Himself, and in His true deity, He takes a hold of us and brings us to God. Speaking of this, my dear friends, in the book of Leviticus, all of the sacrificial system, Jesus Christ is the priest of God par excellence, and He is the prophet of God par excellence. He is the priest of God who prays for us and lives to make intercession for us, something that the priesthood in the Old Testament was forbidden for doing, because as the book of Hebrews says, they kept dying, which meant there had to be another priest, but not your high priest. Not your high priest that is the fulfillment of everything in the sacrificial system. He offered himself once for all time as a sacrifice acceptable for God. And he lives to make intercession for you. He is the scapegoat. That animal. The priest would lay their hands upon the head of that animal. And through imputation, the sins committed by the nation would be imputed into that sinless animal's account. Led off into the wilderness, never to return again. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, takes your sin, places it upon Himself, and takes it into the grave. The wonderful doctrine of expiation. Your sin removed from you, never to return again. Jesus is the true temple. What is the temple of God? What does it represent? Well, it represents all sorts of things. What happens at the beginning of the world? God places His people into a garden of absolute perfection where He dwells with them, walks with them, communes with them. The Holy of Holies, the most holy place on the planet. What is the decor like? Everything is garden-themed. From the stitching on that thick curtain to the candles on the inside, everything is a picture of the garden that was lost and the communion with God that was lost. But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that Because He didn't just bring a building. No, He is Emmanuel. He is God come to dwell with us. And as Israel in the book of Numbers, well, Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years after passing through what Paul refers to as a baptism in the Red Sea and the cloud. Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 days after passing through the waters of His baptism. Fared much better during those 40 days than Israel did during the 40 years. Jesus is the fiery serpent lifted up on the standard in the midst of the camp, that all who would look to Him by faith will live 
and not die. He is the one that became sin and drank judgment down to the last drop so that all of the dying and sin-bitten sinners like you and I who look to Him by faith would live and never die again. As Israel in the book of Deuteronomy learned to live as the people holy to God by their obedience to the law of God in the land, what is those Old Testament purity laws about? Why is it that they can't do this? And why can they not touch that? And why can they have to do this? It is because they were being set apart as different than the surrounding area from them. They were being literally made holy unto God. And my dear friends, Jesus Christ obeyed that law of God perfectly and without a mission. In the very same land, yet on the cross, he would suffer the wrath of God. He would bear the penalties promised for all of the law breakers. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, it is the document. It is the legal documentation of the covenant of grace that we find there in the Old Testament. The covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And it, my dear friends, begins with this wonderful proclamation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God goes on to tell them from the smoke and from the fire on Mount Sinai, you obey the commands of this law and I will bless you beyond your wildest imagination. You disobey and I will curse you. That wonderful section of God's Word where the nation is split up into two groups. Some are on Mount Gerizim. Some are on Mount Ebal. And all of the covenant blessings are pronounced over that valley upon those that obey the Word of God. And all of the covenant curses are pronounced over that valley upon the covenant breaker. And Jesus Christ is our only hope because we are all covenant breakers, but He was a covenant keeper. Which means He pays the penalty of the covenant breaker and He wins for us all of the blessings of the covenant keeper. It's all about him. All of the land promises that are in the Old Testament, well, the New Testament reality of that is inclusive of that little strip of land that was promised to Abraham, but it's expanded in the fulfillment of that. The meek will literally inherit the earth. Why? Because the earth has been granted to Jesus Christ as a part of his inheritance from his father. And if you are in him, well, you have been humbled, which makes you one of the meek. And this earth is your inheritance in its glorified form. Not just a little strip of land, but the whole thing. So the suffering and the subsequent glories of Christ, that is the center of the law of Moses. Christ and the prophets, really quickly. Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation, is a foreshadow, or maybe a better term would be a foregleaming of the true Joshua, Jesus Christ. As the people conquer the land of Canaan and they conquer the Canaanite peoples and take the inheritance of Israel, the promised land crowned by the city of Jerusalem, my dear friends, Jesus Christ conquers not just the world, but He conquers our sin and He brings us into the new Jerusalem, a bride adorned for her husband descending out of heaven. And Jesus is the head-crushing Savior of the woman. In the book of Judges, Genesis 3, seed of the woman, crushed the head of the serpent. You read through the Old Testament and you will be amazed if you pay attention at how many people's heads get crushed. It's really incredible. In that book, the book of Judges, let me just take that one. J.L. crushes the head of a serpent-like enemy named Sisera. As in that book, the woman crushes the head of a wicked man named Abimelech with a millstone that is thrown from the battlements and literally lands on his head. As when Samson brings down the temple of Dagon over the heads of the Philistine idolaters. Samson is seen there to be a type of Christ doing what? Giving his own life to save his people and judging his enemies at the very same time. Why? Because through that suffering, there will be subsequent glory. For his people. 
Jesus is the shepherd king of Samuel and first and second king. Jesus, my dear friends, you read the New Testament and you find that he's the one that binds the strong man. And after the strong man is bound, he pillages the household of the strong man. And that binding is necessary because as long as the strong man is alive, you can't go into his house and take his stuff. But if you deal with the strong man first, then you can. Well, the New Testament reveals it is Jesus who does that. But the Old Testament reveals it as well, doesn't it? Jesus is the one who binds the strong man who was clothed in scales by crushing his head with a rock, right? You say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's the story of David and Goliath. You know, our English translation of the Bible really do us a disservice there because it's typically translated as he was clothed in a coat of mail. The Hebrew text literally says that Goliath was covered in scales. His armor was given to look serpentine in nature. Well, what happens? David, as a type of Christ, literally crushes his head. And then what happens after that? Well, the strong man is bound. So what's the next move? David, along with all of the armies of Israel, chased the Philistines out of the place where they did not belong and pillaged them and take all of their goods in doing so. The story of David and Goliath is not just fodder for Sunday school tales. It's about the suffering and subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the one that is born in Bethlehem. He is the man after God's own heart. Jesus is the one who kills his tens of thousands of enemies to save his people from every enemy and rule over his people on a throne with dominion that will never pass away. Jesus, my dear friends, he is the weeping prophet that Jeremiah was a foreshadow of who, like Jeremiah, does what? Jesus, in his day, he calls the wicked religious rulers of his day and the shepherds of Israel to repentance, and he weeps over their stubborn unbelief when they won't do so. So while the sin of Adam had reached its logical conclusion in Israel, embodied in what? A valley that was full of dry bones. Dry bones that had been bleached by the sun. Dry bones of the dead in the book of Ezekiel. My dear friends, Jesus Christ is the God of the covenant. He is the Word of God and the prophetic and effective Word itself, which brought forth from that valley of sorrow and death, sinew and flesh and blood and beating hearts and a new life and raises up a mighty army. Through sin comes dead bones and desert wastelands. But from that death, there is resurrection glory and a new creation. Jesus puts flesh on Ezekiel's tail from his prophecy. Through his own mortal suffering, because he himself passes through the valley of the shadow of death, through his betrayal and crucifixion and burial, yet he himself becomes our newly sinewed new creation and warrior of God. Isaiah's suffering servant, who heals us with his own wounds, this is the Christ. The one that goes silent to the slaughter without opening up his mouth to save his people, that is the Christ. He is the prophet of God par excellence. Jesus shines through the bleakness of the minor prophets as well. He is the faithful husband to the unfaithful bride in Hosea, redeeming his bride from the slave market in sin and death. And much like Jonah, swallowed up and then spit out three days later, that's the Christ, threatening utter destruction for the unrepentant like Malachi. Your, your Old Testament scriptures end with the book of Malachi. And Malachi says the day is coming, burning like a hot oven, when God will consume the wicked as chaff. My dear friends, you understand, we learn more about the suffering and the condemnation of those that will not come to faith in Him from Jesus Christ Himself than any other prophet that ever walked the face of the earth. This is all the Christ. 
rebuking the oppressor, relieving the poor, loving what God loves and hating what God hates in the book of Amos. This is Jesus. That's the Christ. The suffering and subsequent glories of Jesus, they are the very heart of the prophets. I'm out of time, so you're only getting one point tonight. Let me finish this. Christ in the writings. Christ in the writings. And I'll be brief, maybe. Jesus is the center of the Psalms. <laughs> you know, we, we, um, at Grace Life, we, we sing the Psalms every single week. And it is an amazing thing that as you sing those Psalms and you become well acquainted with them, you see Jesus Christ all over the place. He is the central theme of all of the songs in the scriptures. They are not just a few messianic Psalms. My dear friends, I would submit to you, there's 150 messianic Psalms. He is the tree planted beside streams of water in Psalm 1. He is the righteous one who bears fruit of the river of life in Psalm 1. Though the nations rage and plot against the Lord and his anointed to crucify him, He holds them in derision and he laughs at their efforts and he rules them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. And though he cries out, God forsaken in Psalm 22 and pierced through in his hands and feet and side, though he is surrounded by a band of evildoers, though he is surrounded by strong bulls of Bashan, speaking of idolatry, though they are dividing his garment up in the casting of lots, God plants all of Jesus' enemies as a footstool under his feet, Psalm 22, and the wealth of the nations will stream into Jerusalem where Christ rules and reigns on the throne of David that will never pass away and Zion's hill will be eternally populated with the worshipers of Jesus Christ. That's the Psalms. Proverbs, it provokes us. You read the book of Proverbs and two things happen. Number one, you say, man, this is street-level wisdom that I desperately need. This is the stuff I wish I would have listened to when I was a young boy. This is the sort of stuff I know my dad tried to teach me and I should have listened to. And Proverbs provokes us to our need for a better son of David. That's what the Old Testament does, my dear friends. That's how it is a tutor and a schoolmaster. You read the Old Testament, what happens? You are left saying, Adam has failed. The kings have failed. The prophets have failed. All of the judges, they failed. God, is there someone else you can send? That's the feeling you have when you read through Proverbs because you know, God, you must send someone that says all of the wise things but lives a life that can back it up because Solomon could not do that. In Proverbs, Solomon shows us a shadow of the one in whom is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and glory. The one who can bring you safely through the suffering of your own folly into the glory and the gifted wisdom of righteousness that only God can give. And who is the righteous, upright one that suffered without deserving it? You read the book of Job. You read the book of Job and after chapter 2 you are left saying to yourself, this is not fair. God, you said that this is a righteous man. God, he was making sacrifices for his family that he loves. God, he was the most upright. And literally, the text says, he was upright. What is with this sense of injustice? How could someone that did not deserve it suffer in that way? Because, my dear friends, while Job was a historical real person that lost historically real things in that event that takes place in Job chapter 1 and 2, Job was not about Job. Job is a foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the righteous and upright one that suffered without deserving it. And who is it that utterly confounds the counsel of Satan in that suffering? Who is it that while 40 days in the wilderness without food or water will not be tempted to sin? Who is it as you read through the book of Job who refuses, I will not curse God and die. I will not. Though he slay me, I will worship him. What is the book of Job all about? Who is the one that gave up every 
everything in suffering in order to receive back tenfold of everything that was lost on the other side of that glory. To say it another way, who is it that suffered for the sake of subsequent glory? Job is about the Son of God. Jesus, brothers and sisters, he is the righteous sufferer who has a bride that frequently lies and says foolish things. Job's wife, just curse God and die. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, thankfully, all of the stupid things we've said is not inscripturated forever. Jesus is the friend of sinners, and those sinners can give him no needful counsel. (laughs) Job, who needs enemies with friends like this? You read through those counselors and you're like, what in the world? You guys can't say anything right. Yeah, and and the crux of their problem was they believed that we live in a quid pro quo cosmos. Job, if this happened to you, you must have done something really bad. Place yourself in the first century. You're leaving Jerusalem after a holiday. Or maybe you're camped outside of Jerusalem. You're there for the Day of Atonement. You happen to pass by a hill. There are three men hanging on crosses there. The one in the middle has got a placard above his head. A crown of thorns on his brow. You might be prone to say something like, you know what? He must have done something really, really bad to deserve that. Don't be too hard on Job's friend. What is all of that about? The suffering and the subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. One more grenade. There's a really good textual possibility in the Old Testament that Job is Jobab, one of the kings of Israel, which really makes his possessions and his counsel Make a whole lot more sense. Who is it, friends, that takes the sinful desire for her husband as a curse in the book of Genesis and redeems it and transforms it into the joyful desire that we see in the Song of Songs and the Song of Solomon? It is the Christ. And though the preacher of Solomon's Ecclesiastes laments the utterly unsatisfying nature of life under the sun for every human being with eternity set in his heart, well, Jesus, my dear friends, unlike Solomon, is the true preacher and gives to us new hearts that possess the eternity of God that God dwells forever in, which sets you free from the utterly unsatisfying life of chasing after the wind. He laments with the writer of Lamentations, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without light. And yet, who through that suffering has restored men unto himself and renews covenant with his people? He is the stone, my dear friends, that through death topples kingdoms that we see in the book of Daniel. He is the one given authority over all in the book of Daniel. He is the one that approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days. He is the one of the Ancient of Days, grants an authority and a sovereignty and a rule and reign that will never pass away. He is the restorer of the new Jerusalem and Nehemiah, and he is the kinsman redeemer of the book of Ruth. He is the one that is sent just like Esther at the perfect time. You read the New Testament, what do you find? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman to redeem those who were under the law. In the fullness of time, just like Esther, Jesus enters into the scene. He is the one that sent to hang Satan like wicked Haman on a gallows of his own making. You know, one of the amazing things that happens, friends, is you see persecution around the world. You see all sorts of post-modernity here in America that makes people believe all sorts of different things about religion. You're like, man, I really don't know. I don't know how the church is ever going to prosper through this. My dear friends, the church will prosper because no matter what, the kingdom of darkness will not defeat the kingdom of light. And one of the reasons for that is they never seem to learn. 
You read through the Bible, what you find is the forces of darkness and evil, they always run the same play. Death, 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 death. And it's not going to work because why? Jesus Christ, in coming and laying down his life in a sacrificial death, he has put death to death. And just like Haman, Satan built his own gallows on the cross. And the suffering and subsequent glories of Jesus thunder from the writings to please Hibernia Baptist Church. Let me and allow Peter to plead with you in light of these things. Do not read your Old Testament as if it is a fable. Do not read your Old Testament as if it is merely a historical narrative. And do not read your Old Testament as an unbelieving Jew. You read your Old Testament as a Christian. When you read your Bible, Old Testament and New, Jesus is the one that is speaking to you. It's not just that the prophets are speaking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is speaking through the prophets. Dr. Edmund Clowney puts it this way, the incarnate Lord is the true witness, the eternal logos in the source of the prophetic testimony. The spirit that was fire in the bones of the prophets was the spirit of Christ driving forward to the salvation that he must bring. Here's your application as we leave. We would be fools to be bored with it. This is the one big application. You read what Peter says there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 12. You see how it is that Luke 24 speaks of the Old Testament. You look at all of those just a handful of examples I just gave to you, and there's enough to fill up a thousand more meetings with. We would be fools to be bored. We would be silly to be half-hearted. We would be silly to be disinterested. We would be silly to be lackadaisical in our cherishing of this grace that the Scriptures reveal. Brothers and sisters, you realize angels long to look into the things that you were able to see. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Moses, and David. Peter tells us here, they searched diligently. They looked intensely. They wanted to know and they wanted to see how could we ever be bored with this? How could we half-heartedly pursue these things? And I challenge you, friends, pick up your Bible and make it your joyful duty to devour it, to know it, to search it out to the very bottom, to make eye contact with every line, to make eye contact with every word, and to believe everything that you find there. Can you imagine sitting down with Peter tonight with all of the resources and unparalleled availability of the Scripture to you? i got a hundred translations of the Bible on my iPhone that's with me all the time. I've got a Bible that lives on my pulpit at the church that is my preaching Bible. Can you imagine me sitting down with Peter and saying, ah, oh, you know, I, re- I just, I haven't made a point of reading the whole thing yet. And what is the center of centers of the whole thing? The thing above everything else in the Scriptures? The good news. Gospel and salvation through the suffering. And the subsequent glory of Jesus Christ. God would call us to wonder and to awe at the contents of this book. Not as some kind of a dusty theological homework assignment. But for the joy of seeing and knowing and leaning into the glory of the salvation that you possess in Christ and because of Christ. Because in Him, you've got it all. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that You would write its truth on every single heart. I'm grateful that You have sent forth Your Son into the world to be our Savior. I'm grateful that you have sent forth your spirit to be our guide. It's in Jesus' name we pray.